that you are the one that we love. And honestly, Lord, there are times where that is not true. That our hearts are so often prone to turn to lesser things, lesser loves, seeking satisfaction in so many different ways, and yet we are left depleted. Please stir in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that we may be truly satisfied. Convince our wayward hearts that there is satisfaction in none other than you, Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to gather to hear your word, to study, to grow, to worship. Quicken our minds and our hearts to hear and apply your scriptures this morning as they are preached. May you be the God of our life, our mind, our hearts, our emotions, our souls. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, y'all, I'd ask that we open our Bibles. Everybody say, Word. We are in Acts chapter 3. We are picking up where we left off last week. I hope you all remember from last week that there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power to heal. And this week we will see that there is power to save. Now last week we met a man who for 40 plus years had been lame in both of his feet. That means he was crippled and unable to walk. He was daily laid at a gate called Beautiful. Just cruel irony. Uh, this man was anything but beautiful in the eyes of his culture. He would be laid at the temple in Jerusalem to plead for hand, handouts and alms for those worshipers who were going into the temple. It is a man that everyone knew, but nobody knew by name. In fact, he was often referred to, or more likely referred to, in derogatory terms and glaring glances, or even worse, empty sympathy. Culture is ever so unkind to the broken and the messy. And I say this to the shame of the church. The church is at times ever so unkind to the broken and the messy and the stained. It just so happened, though, on this particular day, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John, both apostles, were heading up to the temple for the hour of prayer. Both morning and afternoon, they would pray. And as they arrived at this particular gate, they were at the cross section or the cross street of need and compassion. And they were left with a choice. What should they do with this man who was laid at the gate called Beautiful? We are often faced with these types of opportunities when our paths cross those in need. We are tempted to do one of two things. Ignore the person and act like we don't see them. Or we turn our attention to them and actually seek to meet their needs. And Peter, looking beyond his immediate need of gold and silver, saw an even greater need, his need for Jesus. Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Peter looked at the man, caught eyes with him, locked eyes, said, look at me, and said this, I have no silver and gold. Imagine how much this man who is in need of, of silver and gold must have felt a sting of those words. But what I have, I give to you. See, Peter could only give of what he possessed. And what he possessed by name was greater than all the storehouses of earth. In fact, possessed the storehouses of heaven. And the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Family, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power to heal and there is power to save. Silver and gold would have provided for daily need, but by the name of Jesus, Peter had the power to heal. In his position and office as apostle, he had the authority and the power 
to heal. And I argued last week, and I will through the course of the rest of the book of Acts, that this particular healing was given for a very specific purpose. In fact, three. First, to provide an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Just as we saw in Acts chapter 2, God provided the abundant miracle of the apostles and disciples bursting out into the streets, 120 in all, proclaiming the glory of God in all the languages of earth, specifically for the opportunity to preach the gospel. Well, this particular miracle, this particular healing was given for the exact same purpose so that the gospel could be preached, but secondly, so that it could be proclaimed and validated in power. That the gospel comes in power, power to change a life. In verse 3, it was to bless the one to whom the miracle was directed. I don't want us to be so clinical that we overlook the fact that heaven stoops and bends down to this poor man. Easily overlooked by his culture was not overlooked by heaven. No, in fact, the story has been preserved for all of history in our scriptures that this man's plea and cry was not far from the heart of God. This man's identity was immediately changed. And what is significant about that is his eternal destiny changed, and through this man's story, many thousands would be saved. You know, this, this guy who was so insignificant and unnoticed and easily overlooked, broken beyond repair, stained beyond cleansing, became the exact same vessel that God used to literally lead thousands to Christ. And you may be looking at your life or looking in the mirror and you may be convincing yourself that you are insignificant, unnoticed, easily overlooked. Maybe you're broken beyond repair. Maybe you are so stained that there is no possible way that a God like the God we speak of in the scriptures could use a person like you. I want to encourage you from the life of this crippled and lame man that God can and will use the insignificant, the overlooked, the broken beyond repairs, and the stained beyond cleansing. Somebody say amen to that. Because here's the deal. You are cherished, and you are valued, and potentially God can and will do things through you that can lead thousands to him. Thousands to him. Never underestimate what God can do through the insignificant, the messy, the broken, and the stained. Spoken from one messy, broken, and stained pastor. Acts chapter 3, verse 11. While he clung to Peter, so this crippled man is still getting his sea legs, clinging to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. Why are they utterly astounded, class? What is it that's utterly astounding about this? You what now? For years. For years this man has been daily laid at the gate called Beautiful. For 40 plus years that has been his existence. So they are astounded and amazed to see this guy walking into the temple. And so Peter and John and this man who's been healed make their way to what is called Solomon's Portico, a very important place in the court of the Gentiles. In fact, I quote here from Dr. Constable. It says, the portico of Solomon was on the east side of the temple mount in double rows supported by high columns of pure white marble and ceiling panels of cedar. It was not only a very beautiful place, but it was a very important place to teach from. It provided an ample auditorium for, well, or place for people to stand, and it also provided for the voice to be amplified off of the stone and the marble. It, in fact, was a place where Jesus often taught. Can you imagine? Peter is literally taking Jesus' pulpit. You want to talk about big shoes to fill, but here is Peter immediately turning the attention of the crowd away from Peter and John, and, and really away from this man who's been healed to turn the attention of the crowd to Jesus. Verse, verse 12. When Peter saw it, that is, he saw the crowd gathering, he addressed the people. 
men of Israel. Who is he speaking to? Men of Israel. What does that mean? He's speaking to Jewish people. Okay, you guys are going to have to understand that as I go through this message, and I had a feeling in first service that I was going to lose, I was going to lose the, the attention because it's a very Jewish-centric message, Jew-centric message, Israel-centric. And we need to realize that Jesus is not just our Savior, Gentiles, but he is the Messiah of Israel. And so I'm going to ask that you may remain really attentive because I'm gonna, we're going to look at the gospel from a different direction today. And we need to be able to do this. We need to be able to recognize that the gospel is even bigger or greater than we ourselves see it. It is multifaceted, and we need to be able to look at it from a different direction. That's what we're going to do today, and we're going to do that through this sermon that Peter is preaching to a Jewish audience. He said, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He's like, get your eyes off the vessel. Quit looking at the vessel that God used and start looking at the God who brought about this healing. In fact, this particular healing has been brought about by none other than the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of our fathers who glorified his servant Jesus. Who is, who is Peter talking about? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is that? Yahweh. He's talking about the God of covenant. The God that we are introduced to in the book of Genesis, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob family, God is the covenant God. He is the God who keeps his promises. He is the God who promised and foretold that there would be a Messiah sent, and you know what? God glorified his servant. Jesus is not only the Savior, he is not only the Lord, but he is the suffering servant. And so how did God glorify Jesus? Through raising him from the dead. You see, God was so pleased with the offering of Christ that he rose, raised him from the dead. He goes on to say, This Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. This suffering servant, this Messiah, had come to die. Been foretold of by the prophets and had been in the heart and, and mind of God from the very, very beginning. But he's looking at this group of men who are gathered and he goes, Hey, look, you all denied him. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 14, You denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. Now, just put yourselves in the shoes of, of these Jewish listeners. What are you feeling at this moment? Oh, no. If this is at all true, they have, in essence, killed the Messiah. He uses three titles that are steeped in biblical significance, family. He calls Jesus the Holy One, the Righteous One, and the Author of Life. All three of those are biblically significant. And he's retelling the Passion account that we look at every Good Friday. In fact, let's look at that really quick because it's Peter's saying, hey, you denied him and you chose a murderer. Well, in Luke chapter 23, so turn to the left in your Bible, hold your place in Acts 3, and turn over to Luke chapter 23. Give you time to find your place there. Luke 23, starting in verse 13.
says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find anything guilty of any of your charges against him. I have found him innocent, said Pilate. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will there punish and release him. I love Pilate. I find no guilt in him, but I'm still going to punish him. <laughs> and he was doing that in a way to appease the crowd because he's recognizing there is absolutely nothing deserving of death in Jesus. The Roman governor is able to see clearly what the Jewish people are not able to see, that there is nothing deserving of death. Why could the Jewish leaders not see it? Somebody said it God hardened their hearts. There was a hardening. We're going to get to that. Why would God ever harden the hearts of his people? Verse 18, but they all cried together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. They literally cried out for the release of a murderer and cried out for the death of their Messiah. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will back to acts 3 you killed the holy one the righteous one the author of life and chose for yourself a murderer listen to these titles first the holy one it is a title of messiah secondly the righteous one a title of messiah and then third the author of life the it's a title of messiah what is he telling his audience you killed your messiah you killed the author of life. And I find this fascinating, that title, author of life, it's all week has been with me. He is the author of life, who gave his life, who's been raised to life, who is now the giver of life. He is the author of the new life. He is the author of the eternal life. And he is the author of the Lamb's book of life. You know, when an author sets out to fill blank pages with a pen, with sentences and paragraphs and chapters... I started thinking about how is Jesus writing a book, and what he's doing is he's not just inscribing a book with sentences and paragraphs and chapters, he's filling a book with names. The names of whom he's redeemed. Did you know that Christ is at the present moment writing a book? And if there's any author and if there's any book that you ever want to be known by, it is the Lamb's book of life, and in the author is Jesus. The Bible declares that all whose names are found in that book when he calls roll, will be caught up to heaven with him. And all whose names are not found in the book of life will be found in another book entirely. And that's a book of our own writing. It's called the book of works. That if we refuse to believe and receive Christ, we are literally held accountable for the works that we have done here in this life. We either allow Jesus to write over us or we allow ourselves to write our own story. But in the end, the truth will ring out. And I'll tell you right now, there is one book and there's one author I want to be found in, found by. I don't want my name found in Forbes. 
I don't need to be found among Time's most influential people. I don't need to be found on the New York Times bestseller list. I want to be known by the author of life, and I want to be found in his book of life. Somebody say amen to that. Do you all agree with that? If you want to be found somewhere, let it be there. So Peter turns to his, his audience. He says, look, you killed the author of life. You know, God raised him from the dead. In verse 16, it says, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. As I talked about, his, his legs were strengthened, ligaments loosened, his, his mind began to send signals down the superhighway of the central nervous system. His, his body was healed, but more importantly, his soul was saved. The faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. There's power in this name. Jesus is the Holy One. He's the Righteous One. He is the author of life. In verse 17, he turns to his audience and he says, And now, brothers, I recognize that you acted in ignorance. He's like, you didn't know. You were unaware. You were blind. You thought you understood the ministry of Messiah. You thought he was going to be a ruler and a conqueror, but you completely cherry-picked passages and overlooked all of the passages in the Old Testament that speak of the suffering of Christ, suffering of Messiah. And we do that. We look to the scriptures, we cherry-pick the ones we like, and we overlook the ones we don't. And what we do is we craft a God who doesn't exist. They had created a Messiah in their mind who didn't exist. Yes, there would be ruling, and yes, there is going to be conquest. Yes, there is going to be an establishment of a kingdom, but he first had to come to suffer and die. And he says, you're ignorant of this. And all of this time as he's preaching, he's pushing his audience towards a decision. You've got a decision to make. You will either humble your heart and repent of unbelief and receive him and believe in him, or you will continue to reject and turn away. Peter is always preaching for decision, pushing people towards a decision. In fact, in verse 18... He says, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he fulfilled. That God fulfilled his promise that his servant, his Messiah, would suffer and die. God fulfilled that. And as I meditated and I thought about like God's fulfillment, what I come to realize is that God's will is done. He accomplishes his will and his purpose. And so in verse 19, he says, repent, therefore, and turn back. Somebody tell me what the word repent means. It means to turn. You see that? He says, turn, turn, turn again. See that for emphasis? He's like, turn away, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, what sins is he referring to there? You say all sins. What specific sin is he referring to in this sermon? Rejection. You have denied your Messiah. You have lived in unbelief. Now turn and believe. Believe. You see, it's fascinating to me that so often our focus in preaching the gospel centers on particular sins. Like we walk up to people and we're like, hey, did you know you're a sinner? Which is a great way to start a conversation and, and always leads to lifelong friends. How to win friends and influence people. You walk up to them and you say, hey, sinner. Did you know you're going to die and go to hell? That's always a great icebreaker at a party. Um, 
Go ahead and try the uh, Turner Burn. Our next t-shirt. Somebody falling into flames. <laughs> See, there's a major issue here. And, we, and this is a problem for the Gentile church. And I'm just going to be honest with you. We talk so much about our sickness. But so rarely about the cure. We talk so much about our ailment, but so little about our healer. We preach so heavy about people's sin to point out the particular predicament that people find themselves in. And then we tack Jesus on at the end. Family, we got to preach Jesus first. Okay, he's not just the Savior, okay? He is the Messiah of Israel. And we've done a terrible disservice to our understanding of Jesus and the Scriptures when we overlook that when we just like gloss over or pass over passages of Jesus and its fulfillment as the son of David. And we, we jump over passages like this one that when we're speaking of Israel, he is the holy one, he's the righteous one, he's the author of life. And we try to make that Gentile-centric. It's not. God has a plan for his people Israel. And we have this blessing of calling Jesus our Savior. He's the Savior of the world. But you know what? He's also the Lord of heaven and earth. And we need to know more of who Jesus is. And so instead of emphasizing our particular sins, Peter's saying, you don't want to know what the great barrier between God and man is? Which is often presented as sin. You're on one side. God is on the other Sin is in the middle. Try convincing a seven-year-old that it's their great wickedness that's keeping them from God. What great wickedness are we talking about? Because they spilled their Cheerios? Because they were born in unrighteousness and sin? Yes, here's the reality. We are born separated from God. But you want to know the great barrier between God and man? Stephen Carroll. It is not your particular sins that's the great barrier between God and man. The great barrier between God and man is unbelief in Jesus. He's not trying to convince people that they need to sit here and start repenting off and rattle off individual sins that they've committed. He's saying the great, and the great sin that is keeping them separated is unbelief and rejection of Jesus. That's why he spends so much time in his sermon preaching about who? Jesus. He's saying turn from unbelief through that turning in our minds from unbelief in Jesus to belief in Jesus. Guess what happens when your mind changes? So does your life. Repentance, the first work of repentance is turning from unbelief to belief in Jesus. He is who the Bible says he is. He completed what the Bible says he completed. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. I believe for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that all who believe in him and when we, we preach to Jesus and we, we preach a very, very specific aspect of who Jesus is to the neglect of all other facets of who Jesus is, we walk around not really knowing who we believe in. We have a very, very small picture of who Jesus is. So Peter says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20, he's going to get downright eschatologically specific. And what I mean by that is he's going to start talking about end times. 
And this is typically where we go, and our brains like turn off. And crickets start chirping. And we start thinking, man, lubies, I wonder what they got. Is it prime rib? I wonder if they got that shrimp scampi thing, man. I could eat all I could eat shrimp scampi, man. Man, it's gonna be good. Garlic toast. If y'all with me, if you are, say yeah. Okay. Because he's gonna get eschatologically specific. And we need to know this stuff, okay? Verse 20. He says, Turn that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed for you. Jesus, he is the Messiah whom heaven must receive until the time of your restoring of all things, for the time of restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. What is he talking about? He is talking about the return of Jesus and the establishment of his millennial reign, his kingdom on earth. He is turning to his audience and he's saying, look, Israel, he's not just talking to individuals, he's literally trying to convince his nation He's like, nation of Israel, receive your Messiah. And you know what? There are some biblical scholars who are so crazy that they actually believe if the entire nation of Israel at this moment had turned in repentance at this very moment, God would have ushered in his kingdom. And I believe they're 100% accurate. That if Israel at this very moment had received their Messiah and had had turned of unbelief and believed in him and received him, at that very moment Christ would have descended and established his throne on planet earth. But that is not according to his plan. Because as we said earlier, there is a hardening. A partial hardening. And there's a specific purpose for the hardening of the heart of Israel. And I'm going to give you three reasons why Israel rejected their Messiah. First, to fulfill God's sovereign plan of the gospel. If Israel had received Messiah, like in his, his earthly ministry, as Jesus was performing and he was performing miracles and teaching and, and showing them the ministry of Messiah, the true ministry, if they had received him, if Israel had received him, God would have ushered in his kingdom at that moment. That does not according to his plan because he must suffer, so his people must reject. Even though Pilate, governor of Rome, is like, the dude's innocent. They're like, we got to put him to death. Why did they have to put him to death? Because it was all according to God's foreknowledge and plan. And this is where it gets really, really good for us as Gentiles, because secondly, God allowed Israel to have a hardened heart to reject their Messiah to fulfill God's sovereign plan for the salvation of the Gentiles, for you. He literally allowed his chosen people to reject him so that he could receive us. How many of you want to say hallelujah to that? But please do not. Grab a hold of that and say, nah, 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 Israel. Because Paul in Romans 9, he begged God, he said, oh, if I could just be a curse for my people. If you could just turn your salvation away from me so you could save my people. His heart was breaking for his nation. And family, our hearts should break for the nation of Israel too because you know what? There is going to be a day, as Zechariah chapter 12 verse through 13 tells us, that there will be a day when the nation of Israel will look on the one whom they pierced and they will have weeping and lamenting and mercy and grace will be poured out on them and a fountain will break open among the people of David and he will establish his rule on planet earth because three, God did this to fulfill his sovereign plan for the redemption and restoration of Israel. Let this not grow in us a heart of arrogance but of humility that God was willing to subject for a time 
his people to harden him so he could welcome us into his eternity. Now there's a couple of responses recorded here in the scriptures to this message. These responses are typical. And what I mean by that, these are common responses in the hearts of people when they hear the message of Jesus. The first is rejection. And it comes across as this annoyed or irked or, or antagonistic. Or we've got to shut this thing down. We've got we to put chains on the message and the messenger. In fact, we'll see this reaction, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, as they were speaking to the people, literally as words are coming out of their mouth, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And received Jesus as their personal Savior. They received him as Messiah, repented, and Jesus established his kingdom. On, no, that's not what happened. Not even close. Mm -mm. Greatly annoyed. Why are they greatly annoyed? Because two reasons. Because they're teaching. One, who are these untrained people taking a place of leadership and teaching? And not only are they teaching, but they're teaching in the name of Jesus. Family, you can teach all you want. You can talk all you want about God and a higher power. But when you get specific, you start talking, no, this Jesus, that's when people get annoyed. You can talk about, any, you can talk about higher power. You can talk about God. But when you start talking about Jesus, that's when it becomes a problem. It says, uh, in the proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. See, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected him. They're greatly annoyed. They're irritated, and so they chain it up. Verse 3, and they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it is already evening. And here's the deal. You cannot chain the gospel. It's already been preached. The truth is out there. Second response, verse 4. But many of those who heard the word did what? They went from rejecting and denying to saying, oh my gosh, he is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. He is the author of life. He is the Messiah. I turned from unbelief to receive him. He died, was buried, and he rose in complete fulfillment of Messiah. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Here's another marker of how big and how fast the church has grown. It's only been a couple of weeks or a few short months since Pentecost. The church has now grown from 3,000 to 5,000 men. You add in their women and children, the church is about 15,000 strong. There's power in the name of Jesus to heal, and there's power in the name of Jesus to save. And so let's talk a few applications first. Application this morning, going all the way back to verse 12, is give the glory to God. There are times when God will work powerfully in and through you. He will use your unique personality. He will use your unique shape as far as the, the personal or the gifts that he's given you in, in your personality and the context where you're at and your circumstances. He's going to compile all that together to powerfully work in and through you. And when he does that, please give all glory to God. Don't take credit for it. And people are looking at you, wow, you're so amazing. Oh, you do such great stuff. And you look at him and you go, oh, well, Please get your eye off the vessel and see the one who fills it. It would be so incredible to see some of our cultural voices, the folks that God powerfully uses, if they could just turn the attention off of themselves onto the God that empowers them. Give the glory to God. Use your gifts. Don't bury them. But when God gives you opportunity, 
to do great things for him, give him the glory, point people away from self to Jesus, because we are not the Savior. We are not the Messiah. We are not the Lord. Are we okay with that, by the way? I'm, I'm okay with that. I make a terrible Messiah. I make an even worse Savior, and you want to talk about Lord. Can we just do that? Can we point people away from ourselves to Jesus? You guys okay with that? Well, secondly, preach Jesus. It is so easy, and we are so conditioned to start with people's sin. And just be like, wow. Have you ever lied? You ever told a lie? Well, that makes you a liar. And then we go through the whole, like, Ten Commandments, and every one of us is broken, every one of the commandments. We're all guilty before God, and sin leads to death. And if you don't have a Savior, you're going to die, and you're going to go to hell. And, and you know what? That, that is a way of presenting the gospel. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's so much greater to just preach Jesus. To go, look, friend, you probably never knew much about Jesus. And you know what's going to happen? This is going to take more time. You can't just share Jesus over a 30-second soundbite. You're going to literally have to sit down with people and explain to them who Jesus is. You have to explain to him that he is the Messiah of Israel and why that's important. You have to explain to him that he's the Savior of the world and why that's important. You've got to explain to them that he is the Lord. And at times you're going to find that Romans Road is insufficient. Do you know why Romans Road is insufficient at times? Because it doesn't give the full breadth of who Jesus is. And sometimes we're frustrated with people because it doesn't work. And we're like, why isn't this working? And the question we should be asking ourselves is, why am I not willing to take more time with this person to walk them through the scripture, to introduce them to Jesus? There is no way to microwave it. We can't expedite it. And we shouldn't even try. We should be willing to sit with people for as long as it takes for them to truly understand who Jesus is. And my belief is when people truly come to know who Jesus is, they're going to want to have this Jesus in their life. I got to have the privilege of leading my, my little boy, Cody, to Christ at camp this week. And my focus was not, hey, Cody, you know you're a wicked sinner. You knocked over your Cheerios. You punched your brother. You threw Legos away that I paid an unreasonable amount for. Do y'all know how expensive Legos are? It's ridiculous. You staple Star Wars on there and they go up exponentially. That's not where I focused. I introduced him to Jesus. And you know what he said? Tears coming down his cheeks. He goes, I want to see him. stupid emotions. And I told them, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Please tell people about Jesus. There will be two reactions. Some will receive, some will reject. But the message of Jesus cannot be chained unless we decide to stop sharing him. And then finally, I'll end here. God is in control. I found this this is a little bit deeper of a, a concept. This is where we get into some doctrine and some theology, and this is good for us. It's stretching. I began this week with a very heavy heart, and those who were around me saw it. I was having trouble sleeping, and I was having trouble finding joy or peace. I was robbed of it. 
but then I turn my attention to his word. Sometimes I turn to things just to medicate those feelings away. But I turn to his word. And I started meditating on this God who authored. And I started thinking about this. The God who could put in place the rejection of Israel, the hardening of their hearts, to fulfill his sovereign plan of the gospel, to fulfill his sovereign plan for the salvation of the Gentiles, to thus fulfill his sovereign plan for the redemption and restoration of Israel. I'm like, if God can orchestrate all of human history to bring about his sovereign and perfect will, then I'm like, okay, you can handle the minor aspects of my story. And the things that I'm worried about, I probably don't have to worry about. And I sought the shelter of his sovereignty. That family, God is in control. I pray that is an encouraging shelter for your heart also. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, God, that the gospel is so much richer and so much bigger than we could ever imagine. We thank you, God, that it has been preserved here for our study and our growth. And God, we pray for Israel. We pray that as a people, they would turn to the one whom they pierced. And in great faith, they would cry out. They would turn back and turn away from. Their sins would be blotted out. And that, God, you would be able to restore and bring about your kingdom here on earth. As a Gentile church, God, we don't often think that way. We don't often think of the significance of those events or those days. But I pray that you'd expand our understanding of who you are and your purposes so that we could appreciate truly your plan, sovereign will for this world and for your people and for us now grafted in. Lord Jesus, we believe in you and we worship you rightly. And pray that we would continue to seek after you with a hunger and a thirst that is only satisfied by you, Jesus. We love you. And today we believe. If you are here today and you have not believed in Jesus, and maybe right now you're like, okay, starting to believe I, I start, I'm starting to see that Jesus is he's this Messiah that you talk about he is the Savior who died and was buried he rose he is the Lord of heaven and earth and I want to believe in him if that's you today in the quietness of your heart tell him Lord Jesus I believe I believe that you died for my sins I believe you were buried I believe you rose I turn from my unbelief in you to believe in you I need you. If you just know it, you need Jesus in your heart. Just tell him, I need you. There is a blotting out and a washing clean. A newness of life. Eternal life. So as you redeem people, Lord, we come before you. Use us powerfully, Lord. And may we give you all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.